Tonight we're going to be looking at the church at Thyatira, and um, it's interesting. We've looked at the three most prominent cities that were in existence this time in this part of the world in Asia Minor. Uh, We've looked at Ephesus, uh, we've looked at Smyrna, and we've looked at um, uh, Pergamos. And um, as we've talked about, we talked about how that these were all just great and powerful cities and, and known for all kind of different aspects. Well, tonight we're going to be looking at what some writers have said is the least known, the least important, and the least remembered of all the seven churches. In fact, I have been told, I don't know this for a fact, but I've been told by those who have gone on tours over in the Holy Land and have decided to take a tour of the seven churches of Asia Minor, a lot of times the tours will skip this particular church because it is so insignificant, there's nothing there left but just a pile of rocks. And so, but even when it was a community, it wasn't really much more than a village, and it was extremely small. But here's what's ironic about that. This is the least important church as far as the world is concerned, but John and Jesus write more to this church than they do to any other church in the book of Revelation. In fact, tonight we're going to be looking at scriptures that begin at verse 18 and go all the way to the end of the chapter, and this is all just one church. So is there anything we can gather from that maybe? Yes, Jeremy. Yep, very good. Smaller churches matter too. And, um, you know, sometimes we think that the big churches is the one that gets all the attention, the one that has, you know, thousands of members and a support team with uh, all kinds of different ministers specializing in different things and all the programs and stuff that they're doing. But as far as God is concerned and His Son, Jesus Christ, Even the tiny churches um, get God's attention. In fact, sometimes they even get more of God's attention because they need more attention uh, because oftentimes it does get discouraging. Um, Does anybody, as far as the name Thyatira, does that conjure up anything? Does that make you remember anything? Yes, Jeff. Oh, yeah. Oh, there's more. Oh, there's far more small churches than there are big churches. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Michael? Yeah, who's Lydia? The seller of purple. It may very well, because we don't know how in the world this church was established. We don't know if Paul took a trip up from Ephesus and established it, or if Lydia went over there and and when she returned home, uh, established a church there. But what's interesting about the town of Thyatira is the fact that the thing that it was most famous for, if it had any famousness, or maybe the thing it's most infamous for, if you want to look at it this way, was that this was a guild town. A guild town. What's a guild? All right, trade union. And Thyatira had trade unions that were like unions on steroids. Basically, the unions ran the town Um, in order to be a part of any kind of commercial enterprise in the city of Thyatira, you had to be a part of a guild, or as we call them today, unions. Um, If you wanted to work in that town, 
you had to be a member of the guild. And they had several different guilds in that town. Uh, they had the selling of purple. Okay, so at one time, I'm sure Lydia might have been a member of a guild. I'm assuming she wasn't after she became a Christian. I'll tell you why in a minute. Uh, they sold bronze. They sold leather. They sold uh, other kind of goods. But this was a town that put out, that manufactured different things that were shipped to other parts of the world. But everything centered around the guild. But what was bad about the guilds, every guild had its own idol. Okay? Um, it was not just a union like we think of unions today where they had collective bargaining and they had a shop steward and they represented the uh, people uh, before the boss. No, everything was in a union situation from the top down. And it was almost more like a social club involved with your work at the same time. But it was very steep in paganism. And they would have gatherings at different temples and that particular guild would meet there, and that's, that constituted your fellowship if you lived in that town. If you lived in that town, you were a member of a guild, and you did everything with that guild. That's what life was like in Thyatira. If you were a part of the uh, bronze or brass guild, the people you hung around with were the brass people, and you socialized with them, you went to the temple with them, you'd have fellowship meals with them, the fellowship mills would, get, would, uh, be, would involve paganism and meat offered to idols and that type of thing. Now, with that in mind, <clears throat> if the guilds were not a good thing because of what they would represent, we're going to see here in just a little bit, and what was involved in being a part of that guild, imagine what it would be like if, say, if you were Lydia and you're converted by Paul and you go back to your hometown, and maybe, we don't know for sure, but you establish a church there, and you can start converting Christians, what's going to be the problem that arises? There's no way you would think that a Christian could continue to be in this particular guild or union anymore. Uh, because the things that weren't, just, it wasn't just work that was involved, it was the life. The guild was the life. And the life wasn't a good kind of life. It was a very sinful life. And so a Christian, when they became a Christian, had to make a decision about, am I going to stay in this guild or not? If I stay in this, I'm going to have to lower my standards of being a Christian. But if I get out of this, as Julie says, I'm no longer going to have a job. And you're also going to be ostracized because of the way that the... the uh, collectiveness of it all is. And so it's interesting, as far as history tells us, there, was no, there wasn't any type of Caesar worship at all that was a form of persecution that the Christians had to deal with in Thyatira. The persecution came whether or not you were a member of the union and whether or not you were going to lower your standards, if you will, to be a part of that union so you could survive. Now... <clears throat> As with all towns in there in this time, they also were involved in the Greek mythology type of gods. And in this town, the main god, the head god there was, was Apollos, or Apollo. Uh, don't get him confused with the preacher Apollos is what I was trying to say. It was Apollo, and he was the sun god. You know, every time the sun rose, they would look at the sun, and that would be Apollo to them. And so there was a lot of temples to Apollo. 
And those were, those were also um, intertwined with the different guilds there. It's interesting, you know, we think about, you don't hear a lot about guilds, and you don't read about them in the Bible, really. But by the second century, some of the church fathers were already writing articles about the dangers of being a part of a guild. Uh, so this was something that evidently was a problem. And it was a problem there in Thyatira. And so you need to kind of keep that in mind as um, we um, look at this, that this is the background of what they're dealing with, and this is uh, what causes the problems they're going to have in this particular church. Okay? Any questions or comments before we move on? All right. Verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write these things, saith the Son of God, who hath hath his eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. All right, following the same formula as it always has, they take a portion of what was said about Jesus Christ in the first chapter and move a little section over it as they address the angels of the different churches. Uh, This time the description of Jesus is, his eyes are like a flame of fire and his feet are like fine brass. That's directly out of chapter 1. But something is added here that, it's the only time in the entire book of Revelation that this phrase is used. Text says, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass. Now, first of all, this solves the issue. If anybody wants to say, well, I don't know if that's talking about Jesus in the first chapter. Right here, it associates the things that it said about uh, that person in the first chapter, and it says this is the Son of God. But why here of all the seven churches, in fact, this is the only time in the entire book of Revelation, do we see this phrase, the Son of God? Why here? Why now? Once again, I'm not asking for a definitive answer because I don't think we can get one, but we can maybe conjure up some opinions. All right. Uh, Very good. Uh, There's the idea there that um, they were interested in their gods. But here was the actual Son of God. Um, Very good. Anything else to what, Karen? Right. And that's what most people think is going on here. It's making the connection that maybe a play on words. You worship the Son God. Let me give you the Son of God. I've I've used this joke a million times, especially with the kids at school. When I was growing up, I was so bright, my dad called me Son. No, I don't know. No, they're not. They're not at all. So that's just what some people guess. I don't know if there's a definitive answer to it. It's just very unusual that of all the different churches, this is the only place we find this. And like I said, it's the only place we find it in the entire book of Revelation. There's all kinds of descriptions in the book of Revelation of Jesus. I mean, paint all kinds of visual pictures, but right here, boom, this is the Son of God talking to you. Maybe it needed that extra authority. Maybe... As Karen said, it was a play on words. We don't know. Um, you know, even though the word did not um, have the same word, it maybe carried kind of the same meaning. I don't know. Yes, Jamie? Yeah, well, yeah, maybe so. Like I said, we don't know where that church came from. We don't know if it was started by Lydia. You'll even find some weird, absurd stuff that say that Lydia came back to this church and, and she turned into a false prophet. I don't agree with that. That's just, you know, scamming a lit- Lydia. But we don't know what happened, how this church got started. Michael, what do you want to say? All right, but we do have the description that we've already seen in, in, in the first chapter. 
It refers to Jesus as having eyes like flame of fire and his feet like fine brass is what the King James uh, has. What, would you, what do you think of? We've already talked about this, but this flaming eye, what would that make you think of? What does that picture in your mind? What would be the symbolism behind that? Piercing. So if it's piercing, it's penetrating. Uh, he sees all. You can't escape his gaze. Um, as I think I mentioned when back on the Superman movies were around, if he wanted to use his x-ray vision, little lasers came out of his eyes and he could see. Um, and what about the feet of brass? All right, they could do some stomping, couldn't they? So maybe Jesus sees all and he's going to punish all. All right, firm foundation. And it may be that of all the different descriptions that we have here, that this one is used and, uh, and brass is used because of the fact there were brass gills there in Thyatira. But the main thing we need to make sure we understand that this has the authority of Jesus behind it. Jesus sees everything, and he punishes those things that need to be punished. But look at verse 19. We have a beautiful description of a wonderful church here. Church, I think all of us would want to be a member of. He says, I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works and the last to be more than the first. So you go through this and break it down. He says he knows that you are a working church. This is a church that wasn't just simply existing. They were involved. They were a working church. And then he goes on and says, well, the King James has charity. The word there is agape. So this is a loving church. Uh, the church in Ephesus had a lot going on, but it wasn't a very loving church, was it? This church had the, had the work down and it had the love down. And then it says uh, service. And this, so that means this was a helping church. Uh, this was a church that involved in helping other people, a very charitable church. And it was a a trusting church because it was a church that was very faithful. And um, then he goes on and, and says that, that uh, the King James has the word patience. It's more, than the, it's more of the idea of uh, steadfastness. Because of the fact they were a trusting church, they were a persevering uh, church. So they were working, they were loving, they were helping, they were trusting, and they were persevering. That's a good description of a church. But then he adds this. And the last to be more than the first is the way the King James puts it. What's another translation have? It kind of clears it a little bit better. All right. You've improved. You get the, the improvement award. You are doing more now than you were at the beginning. And um, in other words, this is a church that's growing. Uh, I guess as a, a preacher, what... There's always a worry in the back of my head is, you know, are we as a congregation better than we were a year ago or five years ago or ten years ago? Um, you always worry about that all the time because we always want to strive to be better than what we were. But the church at Thyatira, boy, they had it down. Uh, they were involved. They were working. They were loving. They were helping. They were trusting. They were uh, persevering, and they were improving on that. But then we get to verse... 20. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which called, calleth herself a prophetess, 
to teach and seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. All right, we got a lot going on in here. This was a church that had a lot going on as far as things that Jesus were pleased with, but they had a problem, and the problem evidently was a woman. And um, I think the name Jezebel here is probably a symbolic name. I don't know if she was really named Jezebel. Um, I don't know who would name their kid Jezebel, any more so would somebody would name their kid Judas, but maybe they would. It's interesting, Stacy's not here tonight, but at one time her father and I went to the same place to get our hair cut, and believe it or not, you know what the woman's name was? Jezebel. And I, I've never seen a Jezebel in my entire life, but that's what her family named her, and that's what was up on her license on the thing behind her chair there. Um, but most people think that this is a symbolic name. Her name really wasn't Jezebel. It was probably something else. might have been Jezebel. We can't argue that definitively. But even calling her Jezebel was supposed to be conjured up in our minds. All right, the other Jezebel we know. And what do we know about the other Jezebel? Well, absolutely. Uh, Jezebel was not an Israelite woman to begin with, but she was someone that was able to seduce Ahab with her womanly wiles. She was a very beautiful woman. And once they got married, she brought even more paganism into uh, the land of Israel, both Baal and Asheroth, which is the female counterpart of Baal. Uh, when she became queen, she had all the prophets of God killed. And, of course, she wanted to kill Elijah, but God protected Elijah. Um, she set up temples in Israel to cause Israel to uh, commit what we call spiritual adultery. They started serving other gods. They would serve God Almighty occasionally, but they mainly chased after the other gods. She had 400, 450 prophet of Baals on, Baal on her payroll. In other words, she paid these people to be prophets in the land of Israel. Um, King James Version says they sat at her table, but basically what it means is that she supported them. She made sure they had a, a way to live. She fed them and had a house and all that kind of thing. Um, she was instrumental in killing a guy that had a vineyard. Anybody remember a guy that had a vineyard? Uh, the, what was his name? Uh, Naboth. Naboth. Um, one day, uh, King Ahab was looking out the window, and he says, boy... That neighbor's got a fine vineyard. And what does Jezebel say? I'll get that for you. And she proceeds to kill Naboth and says, it's yours now. Um, this was an evil, evil woman who caused the Israelite people to sin and um, caused her husband, as he said, to be one of the worst kings in the history of the Israelite people. And so that's the background of where this woman is doing here. Uh, she is causing people in the church to sin. Um, the problem that uh, Jesus has when he's writing this church is it says in verse 20, cause thou sufferest. That's an old English word we don't use very much. What's another translation have? Tolerate. Uh, you might have allow. Uh, it all works. In other words, um, they had all these good things going on in the church, but they hadn't dealt with Jezebel. Jezebel's still there. And Jezebel... 
it says, which calleth herself a prophetess. In other words, she called herself a prophetess, but she wasn't a prophetess. Uh, she told everybody she was a prophetess, and you need to listen to her, but she wasn't. Now, what is a prophetess? All right, very good. I want to make sure we don't think that a prophet is someone who tells the future, and a prophetess will be a female version of this. A prophet and a prophetess in the New Testament times were people who revealed the Word of God. They received messages miraculously from God, and so what they said was the Word of God. In the New Testament, there were those who had the gift of prophecy. We know from 1 Corinthians chapter 14 through 16 that there were women who had this gift of prophecy. In fact, those chapters deal with what were they supposed to do with this gift. They weren't supposed to use it in the worship service, but they were supposed to use it in special kind of ways. Well, this woman claimed she was a prophetess, but she was not. She was not the prophet of God. What came out of her mouth was not from God. It just came out of her mouth is the idea. And so um, she evidently had a following, and people would listen to what she had to say, and she was causing them to do two things. The King James Version has to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed uh, to idols. Now, first of all, she may have been causing people to commit actual fornication, but most people think that what's going on here, and some translations have immorality, don't have the word fornication in some translations, but most people think what's going on here, she was causing uh, this church to commit spiritual idolatry or adultery, uh, which is the Bible sometimes referred to as um, being against God. And there's a play on words, the fact here that this was Jezebel. And also, as we're going to see later on, uh, in verse 23, one of the things that Jesus is going to do when he comes is to kill her children with death. Well, I don't think that's literal. That Jesus, there's all these children she has that there's going to kill, but it's talking about her followers. And so there's some symbolism here, and, and some people think that maybe he, they're not talking specifically about uh, actual fornication, that she was involved in fornication with the congregation. It was more of the idea that she was causing the church to commit fornication in a spiritual sense. And more than likely, it was all centered around these guilds and these unions. And here's what people suppose, and once again, we're, this is supposition. You have this town that is totally consumed with these guilds. And to do anything in this town, to have anything, to socialize with anybody, you had to be a part of this guild. And so some people think that what Jezebel, this woman, whatever her name was, in this church was saying, well, I've received a message from God that you, it's okay for you to be involved with both Christianity and these guilds. Um, and whatever you want to do, it's fine, it's okay, because, you know, we've got to survive, and, and, this, and you can see how that would be pleasing to someone. Um, in fact, it's interesting Several years ago, one of the church leaders by the name of Tertullian, and I think you've heard me mention him when we took that church history class, but Tertullian wrote a poem that was probably a, a, a backlash of this very thing that we're talking about here. The name of the poem was called A Man Must Live. Okay, And he talks about how that, that the Christians were involved in all these heathen rituals, and how that they had to continue to buy and sell so they would compromise 
uh, compromise themselves as a Christian so they could be involved in all of this stuff with the guilds and whatnot, and their justification for it was saying, a man must live. In other words, I've got to survive. I've, I've got to live, and so it's okay. And this maybe is what uh, Jezebel was doing. But Tertullian responds this way. But must you live? In what religion were you told a man must live? Imagine the soldier and the defender of freedom walking away from the battle saying, a man must live. Imagine, says Tertullian, a man must live as the nation's battle cry. And his point is, how in the world would any nation survive, any army ever win a battle? If it was based on the thing, well, you know, I've, I've got to live. And his point is that Christianity never said anything about you living. Uh, Christianity was about you dying, uh, dying to self and dying for Christ. And so most people think that what's going on here is that she was teaching uh, something that was a compromise. There's others who think that she... Uh, was bringing up the same Gnostic ideas that we read about at the church at, at, Smyr- at Smyrna and also at uh, Pergamos, um, this Gnostic idea of Balaam and uh, Nicol- the Nicolaitans, that um, you could do whatever you wanted to because of the fact that your flesh and the spirit is, is different and, and that kind of thing. But most people think it's surrounded around these gills. Uh, any questions or comments about that? Absolutely. Um, we, we think that the ends justifies the means. And so there's a lot of compromising going on. And more than likely, that's the main thing that was happening here. She was giving them permission to compromise. Uh, you can go in, involve yourself with the guilds. You can go involve yourself with the evil activities that they were involved in, even, even if that means committing spiritual adultery with God. Uh, because what they were doing is on Sunday morning, they claimed to be worshiping God, but during the week they were going to these guilds and hanging out with the guild people and they were having the meat offered to idols, which we talked about last Sunday, just eating meat offered to idols wasn't wrong. Paul made that very clear, but they were actually involved in the pagan worship and that's where the wrongness is. And then he says in verse 21, I gave her space, the King James says, to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. And once again, I think the most, a lot of commentators think that this is talking, not talking about uh, physical fornication, but spiritual fornication because of the very idea that, that um, Jesus gave her some time to repent of it. Um, if she was involved in actual fornication, I don't know if Jesus would say, well, you know, you keep doing this for a while and we'll give you time to repent. But if it was teaching that was involved, maybe that would. I do think it's interesting. It shows us the long-suffering of God and the long-suffering of Jesus Christ that he would even give a woman that's described as Jezebel some time to repent. Not that I know of. I mean, there's some crazy people out there. They worship, they worship Satan. I know that. All right, very good. And that, it may be symbolic all the way through. That's not a specific person talking about, but... Um, I don't think you're running any Baal worship today, but you're running into Satan worshipers. I think I told you this. Um, so this may, this may all be symbolic. It may be talking, as Michael said, or it may be a real person. We just really don't know. But we do know in verse 21 that they were given time to repent. And because of that, 
verse 22, time has passed, and he says, Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searcheth the reins and the hearts, and I will give unto uh, every one of you according to your works. So you combine these two things together, there's some punishment coming. Um, People just don't know. I mean, I can't find anything on it, and there's just really not a whole lot of opinion on it. Behold, I will cast her into a bed. And that's what's in the original language. There's nothing else. There are a few, the RSVP has a little footnote that there are few manuscripts that says, I will cast you into a bed of sickness. And you might have a little note in your Bible about that. But the literal Greek here is cast her into a bed. I don't know how that's a punishment, but somehow or another it meant something to them, and it may be a play on words uh, with the effect, well, she's made her bed, now she's got to sleep in it, is maybe is the idea about it, and it's playing on that idea of adultery and fornication, yes. Bed of suffering. But once again, that's not in the original. Um, that's just, there's like, I think I was reading, there's like three different manuscripts that have it, with all the different hundreds of manuscripts we have, that, that's not listed. And so most people think that was added by somebody, maybe in an effort to make it make some sense, because it doesn't make any sense just the way it's written in the original language. I cast her into a bed, um, and is that bed like a bed you sleep in? Is that like a bed of thorns? Is that a bed of roses? I mean, you know, you're just left up to your own opinion there. But it's supposed to be some type of punishment. It may just simply be a play on words because of what she was doing uh, with the church there. And those that commit adultery with her, once again, most commentators don't think that she was having relations with members in the church. This is talking about the spiritual adultery, and they were going to be punished too unless they repented. And, of course, in verse 23, it says, I will kill her children with death. Um, The idea, and some of you have translations that say something different other than death, but death is the actual word there. Like, what does the NIV have? I'll try your children dead. Does anybody have something any different other than dead? I know there's one or two translations that have something different. Man, but dead, uh, death is the word there. And once again, we don't think these are literal children. We think that these are her followers. Um, Paul talks about Timothy being his son in the faith. Um, that was somebody that he converted, and that became his son in the faith. And these were children that were converted to her way of thinking, and they needed to be uh, dealt with. And, of course, he talks about how that he searches the, the reins in the heart. Um, that's going back up to what described as the eyes of flame of fire, the all-seeing eyes. And I'll give unto you, every one of you, according to your works. That's talking about punishment, which, once again, covers the brass feet. Um, so that's what's going to happen to them. I better speed up. I'm going to finish this. But we get to verse 24. We find out what's going to happen to the rest of the church. What I always find interesting in all seven of these churches, with all its myriad of different problems, and here we had a church that had a Jezebel in it, or at least had the, the discipleship of Jezebel in it, but not one of these churches, of these seven churches, do we ever hear Jesus saying, you need to get out of that church as fast as you can. Now, typically what we do, if there's a problem in the church, even if there's a great problem, like there's a false prophet in the church, what do we typically do in this day and age? We lay, I'm going to another church. I'm not going there anymore. I'm getting out of here. I'm putting up with that. But never Jesus tells them to leave. Instead, he tells them to stay 
and to keep being the kind of Christian you need to be. In fact, look what he says in verse 24. But unto you, literally unto the rest of you, I say, and the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not had... uh, as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden. Now, that sounds a little confusing when you first read it, but um, anybody, instead of having known the depths of Satan, anybody had the deep parts, anything like that? You got deep parts, deep secrets? Some people think that she was teaching a form of Gnosticism. And you remember what Gnosticism was? how that you had deep, secret meanings, and that deep, secret meaning, you came up with these different burdens you had to put on people. Well, some people think that what's happening here is that he's making a play on words that, you know, these deep, secret things she's telling you, that came from Satan. That didn't come from me. And I'm not going to put you any other burden on you than what you've already been asked to do as a Christian. And evidently, she was putting other burdens on them. But all that God wants them to do, in verse 25, but, but that which ye have already hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of a potter. They shall be broken to shivers even as I receive of my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So what's the reward he's given here? Well, he says, I'm going to give you the same power that I have already received of my Father. And he uses it in a symbolic way of a a rod of iron. Rod's not a, I mean, rod's the correct translation, but when we think of rod, we think of a metal rod hitting somebody. This rod is a shepherd's rod. This is what a shepherd would use. So it's involved in shepherding, and, and this is a direct quotation um, from Psalms, and I have forgotten what Psalm it is. Anybody have a footnote? What is it? Is it Psalms 2-9? Is that it? Okay. And so basically Jesus is saying, if you hold fast to your faith, that one day you're going to be an heir with me, a joint heir. You'll have the same uh, blessings that I have. And in fact, he goes on and says, and I'm going to give you the morning star. Now, what is that? How's that a reward? If I gave you the morning star, what is the morning star? Well, here in this particular verse, you know, sometimes we say um, Revelation will explain itself. If you'll turn over to Revelation 22 and verse 16, we get an explanation. Verse 16 of, of Revelation 22 says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. So he's saying, if you will hang on to your faith, you will get me. Now, they already have Jesus, but he means in the ultimate way, and that's be able to spend eternity uh, with him. These are passages about uh, the afterlife and eternity and having a home in heaven. And he breaks pattern here and has, and has at the very end of this, he that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So application applies to all, not to just the church at Thyra Tyre. But we're actually going to finish up on time, and we got through with an entire church in one setting, and it was the church that had the most scripture. So we did good tonight. All right, many other questions or comments before we dismiss? Yes. Absolutely, absolutely. But I still think it's interesting that... Um, 
we have a tendency in society today to jump ship from a church about as quick as any. I preached in Knoxville. We had seven churches right there in the city, like 30 in the county. And boy, people would hop churches constantly. I mean, just with the littlest thing, they were going somewhere else. And they'd be there a little bit, and boom, they were going somewhere else. There wasn't a lot of loyalty to a church. Yes. That is very hard. Absolutely. Good point. All right, folks, I'm going to stop because it's time for people to come in. Thank you so much for your questions and your comments.